You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because yes, we overthink these things and we're proud of it. I'm Marcia Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 49, An Immodest Proposal. Welcome back, listeners, for yet another episode of World Building for Masochists. And I suppose we should start off the podcast today by asking, do we have any announcements? Oh, let's see if we can think of something. I'm sure something happened that we should be like, talking about. I feel like maybe something exciting happened on April 13th. Did it? it may have. I think it did. It might have done. <laughs> we we, we, got, a, we like... got a titch of news. And we're all being very modest about it. <laughs> Very modest, very <laughs> subdued, even. <laughs> yes, listeners, we, <laughs> we, none of us actually wants to say it because it, I don't know, it'll feel like a jinx or something, but we were in fact nominated for the Hugo for Best Fan Cast. So thank you so much to everyone who sent in a nomination. We were absolutely bowled over when we got the news, just completely stunned and happy. And yeah. We're thrilled and yes. we're just so excited that we now get to scream about being hugo nominees for yes. the rest of the year so <laughs> yeah really it's it's a got good longevity on this one yes thank you to our listeners because of course you are the ones who who bestowed us with this this level of confidence and honor so thank you um and if the said nomination is now bringing us new listeners who are hearing us for the first time, and perhaps we should remind you who the heck we are in in as modest and proper a way as we possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> we throw down our names every week, but we're not like being like, and our books, and our books, and our books. Most of the time. Some of the time. <laughs> we just do that on Twitter, really. That's <laughs> Twitter, a highly immodest place, I find. Twitter is a place for shouting about. <laughs> yeah. If you're not just shouting about it, then are, why are you there? <laughs> so, yes, we are three fantasy authors who like to overthink this stuff way too much. And um, if you do, too, you might like to dive into our books. Um, all of us have series out and or in progress at the moment. Um, so, um, you can check out each of ours. Marshall, do you want to tell us a little bit about your extensive omnibus <laughs> of, of the series? I, I don't have an omnibus yet. <laughs> if you have a spare shelf on, on your bookshelf, listeners, Marshall can fill that up for you real fast. Um, yes, I have at this recording, 13 fantasy novels, 12 of which are part, are the comprise the Meridane saga which is four intertwined series that braid together into a larger tapestry the entire list of books are the thorn of denton hill a murder of mages the whole rally crew the way of the shield the alchemy of chaos and import of intrigue lady hinderman's wardrobe shield of the people 
the imposters of Aventil, a parliament of body, the Fenmere job, and finally people of the city. And then also my 13th novel is a diesel punk fantasy filled with magical mushrooms, motorcycles, and pansexual polycules. And that is The Velocity of Revolution. And that's all I got right now. That's all. That's all. Just that's all. Just, that's just all. A, <laughs> just yeah. a handful. Very modest statement. Very modest piece of your shelf right there. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have much shorter titles, so I can remember them more easily. Um, <laughs> I currently have out the trilogy The Unrivaled Kingdom, which is a French Revolution-inspired um, second world fantasy with um, politics, intrigue, and sewing magic into clothes. Because if you didn't need more reasons to think about clothes, you can sew magic into them, and it's fun. Um, and they are Torn, Frey, and Rule. See, it, it's it's a lot less impressive lot, boom, than boom, what boom. just happened there. Yeah, But they're puns. They're great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love a pun. Um, I write the Oven Cycle, which is historical fantasy set in an alternate ancient Rome where I gave them magic to see what wonderful and terrible things they would do with it. Uh, the first book is From Unseen Fire. The second book is Give Way to Night. The third book is in progress. It'll be out someday. <laughs> I'm hoping in 2022, but it's uh, I'm, I'm almost finished with it right now, and then it'll be off to my editor, and we'll see what she says. But Do you have a working title for book three, or is that still... Deeply under wraps. I, I I respect if it has to stay secret. Well, no, I have a title that I haven't even pitched yet, but because I'm pretty sure it's going to get nixed for having too weird a word in it. <laughs> the title I like for it is of Icker and of Blood. Oh. But I think Icker is probably too strange a word and it's going to get shot down for that reason. But all of the titles come from quotes from Latin poetry. It so better not because nobody would forget that title. Like that's That's true. Right? Like it's yeah. not gonna be like, oh we'll what, what was you know, it's not gonna be one of those generic titles that people are like, it's you know Like Stars and Blood and something Stars and Blood and, and Bone. Darkness. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, Icker. It's the only Icar. one with that in the title. Exactly. Probably. I'm, but I'm not certain that's a selling point, but we'll see. <laughs> well we like highly it. Highly for it. We but like then it. again, we've established that we are a certain breed of people who like to overthink these things and that is true. enjoy the wordplay and, and the puns and the references and the Easter eggs probably almost too much, perhaps. A Which is maybe us just being modest. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it is. <laughs> Before we move on, I do want to make sure we also thank all of our amazing guests from the last year. Everyone we've had on this podcast has been phenomenal. I can't believe that we get to sucker these people into talking to us for an hour. It's the best part of doing this podcast is is tricking brilliant people into conversation with us. Um, I'm sure we would not be Hugo nominated without them. So many, many thanks to all of them. Absolutely well. not. They are they consistently show us how much smarter they are than we are. And we love it. And we invite them back for more, which is why we're masochists, I think. Because we want to be and, <laughs> shown just how brilliant all of the other writers out there are. And if you want to know more about us or our guests, you should visit our website, which is which is worldbuildingformasochist.podbean.com. And there you will find information about us, links to our books, and links to all of our guests' websites on the show archive. Newly revamped. Very shiny looking, I think. Deeply shiny. I'm very, <laughs> and, I'm very pleased with the shiny. And we'll add to that if you are not having enough fun with us every other week, 
delving into the minutia of world building, we also do have a fan discord um, that has some really fun folks on it who will throw up um, the weirdest, most fun, most interesting questions and ideas and concepts that you would never think of um, until you do. And then and then and then you have your people who are. Yes. And they're there. So um, so do come and join us there as well. If you're new or a longtime listener who hasn't joined us there yet, please do. Well, now that we have have forced ourselves to be um, about as a modest, about as a modest as we get on here, um, let's talk about modesty, shall we? And immodesty and everything in between. Excellent. So, what exactly is modesty? If we're going to talk about a thing, I mean, what what makes modesty a cultural vice or virtue? Yes. Does a culture treat modesty as a virtue or is it is their modesty really a vice that they use to punish each other with and like these are <laughs> these are things i think about are you a guilt culture or a shame culture yeah <laughs> and how does modesty slide into that yeah i feel like much like our conversation about profanity much of modesty is defined by what is scandalous or profligate or vulgar in, in a similar fashion um in fashion, in fact, perhaps. Yes. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, that, I mean, obviously we are, um, often when you think modesty, you're thinking something visual, like how does a person dress or present themselves? But we were just, I think, feeling a little uncomfortable for being very open and immodest in a completely verbal environment. So there's also an element of, you know, not only the, the visual presentation or the modesty of the body, but also the modesty of, um, you know, do you self-promote do you elevate yourself do you brag is bragging something that is culturally acceptable or is bragging something that is not really you know looked (laughs) down upon brings us of course which brings us of course to the idea of the humble brag yes where you know you're not supposed to so you couch it in slightly different terms but still put that out there Exactly. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have the humble brag if we were all very comfortable with the concept of just like... Just bragging. Just being Day, like, I, hey, I'm thing. here and I'm, I'm awesome. I'm here and I'm awesome. And that's how it's going to be. I think it is fun to see what cultures over time have had sort of a lean more to one direction or the other. And when you see the swings in between them. For instance, the, the Tudor era in England was not a humble era. Um, it was an era of show off everything you got, put all your wealth on your clothing, put all your wealth on display, brag, be big, be huge, be loud. But it sort of spawns the Puritan culture that follows as a backlash. And so I think that's interesting where you find those pressures pushing against each other in a society. And that and that, that element of if you are practicing humility or modesty gets tied up with other virtues that you are ascribing to or other vices that you are rejecting and that the practice of modesty is something that can be like a visual reminder of what you are aligned with are you conspicuously modest exactly (laughs) (laughs) which is a fantastic concept but it's a truth it is a it is a performative thing in its own way as much as being Immodest. Please look at just how modest I'm being. Please observe how drab my clothing is. <laughs> how much I'm not showing off. How much money I actually have. But yeah, I think that 
you know, this is coming back to a choose versus presume, right? Does your culture even have a concept of modesty? And if they do, what is it even related to? Is there, I mean, I think that we often, you know, as I said, we often think of modesty as at least being somewhat related to what we wear, what we cover. But it doesn't, I mean, nudity doesn't have to be a problem in your culture, which is a weird thing to think about, but, or certain things that we think are very important to cover don't have to be things in a culture that are important to cover, or ways of speaking don't have to be considered bragging or boasting in a culture, depending on what else you've built around it. Well, and it's... It's interesting. Like, I think that is indeed one of those choose versus presume. There's a lot of in fantasy presuming really the same sort of like moral choices of really of like, you know, modern 20th, 21st century America rather than necessarily what the culture you're mimicking necessarily would have been like we like we do see a lot of that. I mean. Okay, we're going to reach the point where I'm dunking on the Belgarian again. But this is <laughs> this is an aspect that... For new listeners, this is somewhat traditional. We need to have some kind of a this many episodes without incident where we see how many episodes we can go without Marshall dunking on the Belgarian. <laughs> but so, so one of the things that fascinated me when I did a reread as an adult was there was this whole thing where, like, there's... Each culture has their own god. And the culture... The Aloran culture, which is really like the hero main culture of the book, their god is Bilar, who's the youngest god, who is known for like always being drunk, having lots of young girls surrounding him and all that. And, you know, just being being a, you know, Bacchanalian party god, which is fine. But then in the culture, they're like still like very big into modesty, monogamy. And like there's the thing of like the bear cult has those ceremonies i i would never go to those ceremonies which is like why is if this is who your god is and he's like an active like people have like talked to him and he's around with the young girls around him kind of god then like why is like why are those ceremonies like considered bad in your culture if your god is the one being like yeah let's have them let's do it let's let's have the orgy like then why is that it fascinated me in the sense of like why did you make them be 20th century america in terms of like no we're you know we get married and have monogamy when <laughs> clutch the not... pearls yeah and clutch the pearls about about <laughs> things that are that are not that when that shouldn't be who your people are based on who your god actually is like who's making this judgment that they're the ones being like Ooh, no, not that. Well, yeah, it's like, I think in fantasy, you have to take into consideration where are these mores coming from? Are they coming from a religion? And if so, like, is there continuity between what that religion espouses or the myths surrounding it? If it's coming from social, whatever, like, what are the structures of society that are leading you down the road to those particular mores? Because they don't just, like, plop out of nowhere. I feel like a great example of that and sort of playing against the expectations of the aesthetic is Jacqueline Carey's Cuchillo's Legacy series, which has a very French Renaissance-ish vibe to it. That's the aesthetic. But the religion is love as thou wilt. And it's queer norm. And the heroine at one point shows up to a ball wearing sparkly gauze, essentially. (laughs) And everyone's like, 
that's a little daring, but we're not going to kick her out. Like, <laughs> we can see everything she's got. And we're like, all right, props to you. That's very nice assets you have. Um, it's not beyond the pale. It's not out of the realm of, of expectation entirely, even though it's a little daring. And so, like, I think Carrie did a great job of integrating a very different religious set of morals into the sort of aesthetic she was playing with in terms of otherwise, you know, otherwise their clothing is doublets and skirts and things like that. But there are clearly times and places where that can fall away and it's normalized. I think one of the things that we struggle with in fantasy is that we're typically writing something that is a historical-esque thing in some ways. It's like drawing from the past. And we, I think, frequently have a habit of falling into the trap of things are old-timey. And we know what people in old-timey times thought about showing your elbows or your ankles or that you had to do this. And it's like, but in reality, there are a lot of different norms historically to even pull from and get inspiration from and recognize that fit into these larger systems when it comes to modesty. Like, you know, I'm a dork. I do the living history thing and I do 18th century. And every once, I mean, probably at least once an event, if not more, you get some of a member of the public coming up and saying something kind of gotcha. She's like, oh, I can see your ankles. It's like, yes, you have me confused with a different century. That's <laughs> fine where I am. It's 1778. I can show you my ankles all gosh darn day long. You can see my calves if you want to, actually. That's no problem. It's not the Victorian era, which is where most people think of and have this like old timey. These are the things that must be covered to be modest in old timey. You know, yeah. I blame the Victorians for so much of what people get wrong about pre-victorian yes. eras <laughs> well and then not even just the i blame them so then, like, hard the fact that you had kind of like the golden age of hollywood takes so much victorian 19th century literature and remake it as movies and just re-entrench that like layered along with the mid-century issues that we had with say, modesty and everything mid-century else america was also very like so it's like this package of what things were like quote unquote, that's largely manufactured. I mean, and I think that as, you know, 21st century Americans, we have a lot of unpacking to do with that because we're very steeped in it, whether we choose to be or not. I mean. Do you say we need to loosen our laces about it a bit? We might need to. Maybe let our hair down. <laughs> Perhaps. It's going to be nothing but clothing related puns this entire episode. <laughs> And that's okay. I think that one way to push back on that or play with that a little bit is to think about all the different ways in which people have shown modesty or been criticized for not being modest, because clothing is certainly not the only one. And particular body parts being shown are certainly not the only thing. Um, I think conspicuous consumption in and of itself is something that's been criticized and considered immodest in many cultures over time. Yeah, I mean, you can talk about everything from the ancient Romans and the emperors with their banquets and, and how many courses and the ridiculous finicky food they had, all the way up to, you know, reality TV shows showing the lives of celebrities today, where people watch in sort of, I think, a combination of fascination and disgust with the <laughs> conspicuous consumption, um, the things they waste, the things they waste money on. It's just like, wait, how? How can you do that? <laughs> 
If I had $100,000, I wouldn't spend it on a gold-plated steering wheel or something. You know, it's just like the 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 choices involved with modesty are not only about the body or sexuality. It can also be about wealth and pride and, and all of those other factors as well. All the things that get called deadly sins, even though that right there is is steep in a religious base of you know of what is appropriate or not but even still it's you know essentially displaying any one of those seven deadly sins is if ineffective being immodest and i think thinking about what your fantasy culture considers um a a immodest display or what they value and therefore what wasting it or putting too much of it out there could be considered you know just kind of inappropriate you know you could have a culture that your whole thing is is maybe instead of you know really paying attention to clothing or jewelry it's tattooing mm-hmm. and like there are social mores of like when you can get tattooed and what you should show to whom and you can have all kinds of things built up around something that's not having anything to do with are you showing your shoulders or do you have a boob hanging out? Like, that's fine, but, you know, you didn't earn showing that tattoo or you should not, you know, at your age have a full sleeve yet because you didn't, there's no reason, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of angles to play with. I read a book and I, I can't remember the author, but it was called Ink and its premise was sort of inverted, that it was weird in their society not to have tattoos, to be blank to have blank skin was considered really scandalous and like what are you trying to say what are you concealing from us um because you're not presenting yourself in a certain way it was it was a really interesting reversal sort of of our assumptions about tattoos in in the modern day culture or even thinking about different senses that you can play with that aren't visual you know is there are there things that are immodest to do with your voice is singing in public immodest? Is showing off a very good singing voice immodest? Or is wearing certain scents or perfumes something that is is pushing the envelope? Either because those are very expensive scents or because they're affiliated with particular vices or something like that, that to wear that is to be provocative and immodest. I would love sumptuary laws based on scent rather than fabric. That would be fascinating. Be cool. <laughs> like, no ambergris really for you. Cool. Like... Yeah. No jasmine for you. You're not of the appropriate rank. You have to be at least a knight's daughter to wear jasmine. <laughs> like, that would be fascinating. That'd be really cool. I would hate it because I love perfumes. <laughs> and then, like, all the ways people would try to get around it in, like, weird ways. Like, well, you can't wear a rose because... But I just fell into but, this rose bush. Right, Oops. Like, well, I... you know... Maybe, maybe you can't wear Lily of the Valley, but um, this Lily smells pretty similar and it's it's a lower rank, so you can kind of blend it with some things and suddenly you're very risque and very immodest. Along those lines, are there either subcultures that are allowed to cheat and do the unacceptable things or is there like, is there a way, is there a workaround to be respectable but still get away with the things you want to get away with? you know, one way or another to, to break the rule, but break the rule in a way that like, oh, but there's a loophole. Like, <laughs> I, I was, one of the things I was thinking about was how there's so many paintings of the, the Bible story of, of Susanna and the old men, because 
for those who don't know this Bible story, Susanna was like just bathing and two old men like happened to see her and be like, oh my God. And they were so riled up with lust for her that they like started screaming and shouting and it created a whole scene. But like so many painters were like, oh, I need to paint this Bible story that involves this naked woman. And the fact that I need a nude model to do this, that's just, you know, that's the burden I have to bear right now because I'm... It's just, it's just a textually based choice. It's a choice. textually based just... choice of this very holy biblical story, which is... But that's why there's like thousands of representations of this particular story from the Bible and other ones, not so much. I feel like the judgment of Paris with the goddesses disrobing, same yeah. thing. Yeah. There's like 8,000 paintings of that because, hey, sexy nude goddesses, but it's in the story, it's in y'all. The story. I'm just being, I'm just being faithful to Homer. That's it. I'm, I'm respecting Homer with this nudity. It wasn't me who decided this. I'm just the vessel through which it was done. But I feel like that does bring us to a point of like when you're asking about who and what gets to break these norms, I feel like artists are so often the section of society where that comes yeah. out your actors your performers your painters are the ones who are going to be um pushing those boundaries and and they're sort of especially if they're known for being immodest and it's like well might as well embrace it if they're if they're saying this about me then I might as well go full tits out when i go down the promenade if that's you know but that's also a, there's a presumption there as well that artists are viewed that way in in a culture that's sort of historically the way it's often been but it doesn't have to be but then well, maybe the artists are all very buttoned up when they go out in society because they're like, I must save all of my expression for the stage. But then also, are they are they viewed as like some sort of second class people within your culture just for like, oh, no, you, you know, you can't go and with the circus people because then you will be fallen if you if you are with the, them. Because once you go, once you go there, then then you've been lost to us and. <laughs> We like the work they do, but we're not going to associate with that. I think, too, it's interesting to think about what what do you do with your upper class people? Do they have to be the most buttoned up and the most restrained? Or are they given more leeway? Like, well, that person's really too rich for us to really do anything about. So, yep, that's that's his thing. It's we're not wearing pants. We really can't (laughs) say anything because he's very rich. And then if you, you know, if you do have an upper class that pushes the envelope, does that trickle down or is there a rejection of it from the lower class saying that is, you know, that sort of tawdry behavior is, is just why they're corrupt upper class people and we are better than them because we are salt of the earth. I mean, you can kind of play with either direction. Or is it the upper class like we make the rules and we can decide when we get to break them, but you don't get to decide that. Like... Handmaid's Tale shows that a lot with the uh, all the, the the men who are in charge of Gilead. Like they literally just have their hotel filled with prostitutes that they have press ganged into into labor there. That is like their secret little hideaway that only they get to go to because the rest of the culture must be very, very, you know, moral and correct. But they allow themselves to not be because they make the rules. It's very hard running a fascist institution. It is. I don't think we <laughs> need we their ladies the in stress that that really comes it, with. I mean, they need their ladies in old play bunny costumes <laughs> for religious reasons. <laughs> um. 
I think it's interesting too to think about like change over time that I think we kind of have a, a perception at least in sort of contemporary Western culture that every generation pushes the boundaries on modesty a little bit or changes things. But I think what's really kind of funny is that when you look at like how, like even if we want to look at dress for an example, how dress changed over time and that you have all these satires when new fashions would come out of making fun of how immodest they were. Like, oh my God, these regions need dresses. You can just see right through them and they're just, you know, whatever. But you look at the clothes that people were actually wearing 20 years ago, like your boobs are hanging out. Like this is a fashion plate with someone's boobs or they're, they're, they're out. They're just like there. So, you know, every, there's like this perception of change or challenge to modesty that it's kind of like how much of that is real and how much of that is, is a trope that we keep trotting out every time fashion changes. I think in modern times, we have seen this happen with the acceptability of the visible bra strap. It has been an evolution. I was once dress coded in school for the fact that my bra strap was showing, even though I was not wearing a spaghetti strap tank. It was just that the straps weren't in the same place and it was difficult to try and line them up. And so I, being me, chose to just remove my bra and stuff it in my backpack rather than... <laughs> put a sweatshirt on or something um but over time that has evolved to a place where a seeing the bra strap is not like a scandalous thing and now we actually have these bralettes that are like meant to be seen they are designed to be lacy and attractive because they're just sort of embracing the fact that our shirts and our bra straps don't always line up and so that that evolution over the last 20 years or so is an example of exactly that of, of these changing norms which in general is a thing fantasy fiction has a hard time depicting that there are like generational shifts and that the norms of you know one of your parents are not going to be your norms and or that there's also locality shifts that the the norms of one city are not going to be the same as one you know down the coast just for whatever reason I mean, there is that, too, that there are things that are totally normal in some parts of the world or even some parts of the country that are a little eyebrow raising in other parts. Even just climate can play a big role in that. Oh, yeah. Is it, is it normal to, you know, wear shorts and a tank top to go run errands? Or is that like a little like, well, you could you could put on real pants. But like, no, it's 90 <laughs> degrees and I'm not putting on real pants. It's not happening. And if 90 degrees is the norm, then most people are going to be like, no, but it's, you know, that's fine. This is, this is where we're at. <laughs> yeah, I think like whether or not, it's similar to the bra strap thing, whether or not it's acceptable to wear just a sports bra to work out, I think is somewhat similar. That I don't know that that has completely been embraced where I live in terms of like going for a run outdoors, like most people are still wearing like some kind of workout shirt, even if it's a combo situation. But I feel like I visit hotter areas of the country and it seems more normal to go for a run wearing like, you know, shorts and a sports bra because it's 90 degrees at 5 a.m. and come on. I feel like that might also overlap with some places where what is considered modest or immodest depends on what body you have. The fact that a female-bodied figures in general are judged more harshly than male-bodied figures, usually, not universally, but usually, and that if you do not fit your culture's standardized norm of beauty, if you are the wrong size or the wrong shape, then the same garment on you will be considered differently than the same 
garment on a different sized person. Um, there's a lot of, of body shaming issues that get wrapped up into that, into the standard isn't the same for every person, even in within a single location in society. Yeah, I think unpacking the question of gender is huge with modesty. Um, and I think it would actually be really fun to see people poke it a little bit more in fantasy fiction and say, you know, well, do we have, we're focusing on modesty rules for women. Do we have modesty rules for men? Are there things that are considered immodest for a man to do? Are there things that are considered immodest for a non-binary person to do? Are there things that are considered like totally fine for a woman to do, but not for a man? And I think that those could be kind of fun to unpack because again, we are carrying around the baggage of a couple centuries of reinforced concepts um, that got neatly packaged for us by mid-century America and passed right on down um, about what exactly, what modesty and proper behavior do look like. One of the things I tried to do with philosophy of revolution was challenge a lot of those preconceptions in my head, specifically of gender in terms of like I, any outfit that I put anybody in, I said to myself, does everybody get to wear this? Like, I, I made a point, like, in the racing scene, like, I wanted the bit where, like, the sexy person is, you know, standing in front of the cycles and drops the thing that starts the race. And I was like, how can I write this so you never know the gender of the sexy person, just that they're in a sexy outfit? Because as far as they're concerned, everybody's sexy. So therefore, <laughs> why not, you know, why do I have to say who, what that is? Because whoever it is, Everybody's going to be into it. <laughs> you bring up a good question. Is, is any form of body shaming or what people consider like the beauty standard norm in your culture? Like these are huge choose versus presume choices you can make. And like, I know all sorts of fantasy books and we can, we could, we could name names and, and shame people who use fatness as like a weapon as a depiction of like who's who's bad or wrong or things like that and that's and that's definitely a uh, choice that those writers were making and we could we could unpack that all day long <laughs> it's another way in which the body stands in for the vices right whatever those vices are um and it's I think typically a very lazy way of sh oh, yeah. letting the body stand in for the vices. It's and certainly not always in any kind of consistency with other historical or cultural cues that you were putting out there because body size is not something that has been consistently considered over time that different body shapes have been considered ideal or, or even normal over time. And I think that, you know, when you combine that with, the concept of modesty, how you clothe and cover bodies, what we think of as normal and what we think of as ideal has also changed over time. And I think we're in a very weird era at this point in that we don't have our clothing made specifically for us. So now we're not only fitting an ideal, but like literally trying to fit into clothes. Whereas you think about an era in which most people would have had clothing made for them. And a lot of those problems kind of go away because you're having someone, you're not trying to conform your body to clothing that's on a rack. You have someone 
making clothing conforming to your body. Um, and you still have issues with idealization and with normalization of shape, but you don't have the problem of like, literally I cannot fit into this and therefore I am immodest and I am not decent because I do not fit the clothing that is available to me. That got me thinking about like all the Renaissance portraits, especially of men. Like Henry VIII is the classic example, but there were a lot of other guys that did this as well, where like the objective was to look as large as possible in the frame to the extent where the painters actually like sort of shifted the body itself. If you, if you try to line up a human skeleton inside <laughs> of some of those garments, it's like, that's not where your shoulders go. That's, wait, what? Your arms are detached. Because the objective was, once again, in a sense of showing off your wealth and status to be large, to take up space and to have this sumptuous clothing as well that went along with all that and, and showed it off and that's a very different way to show power than some of our modern ideals of, of sleekness and slimness and, and the thin tailoring and the sharp tailoring that we see um, in more modern styles. Even thinking about posture as something that can convey modesty or immodesty is is kind of a shocking thing to think about, but it's totally true that, I mean, you even look at the shift in like both women's and men's clothing from the 18th century to like the mid 19th century. And it goes from very shoulders back, taking up space, very like open chest forward, narrow back, very upright to like this kind of rounded and like not quite slouched, but like taking up less space or kind of bringing space in around yourself by the 19th, like mid 19th century. And it's interesting how both of those like convey ideas of modesty or confidence and how standing in certain postures and certain clothing doesn't even physically work. Um, but moreover would be read in a very forward and immodest way to have your shoulders back and be like, well, if you watched um, Gentleman Jack, the way that they worked with posture and body language and how Anne yeah, Lister just yeah. owns a room when she walks into it and how yeah. this reads so differently than most images of Regency era women that we have that are much more like drawn into themselves. Yeah. And like, even though Anne is wearing much slimmer clothing mm -hmm. because Anne's dressed in men's clothing than the women of the it's like the 1830s is when that's set I think yeah 20s um, so 18th, they've got 20s like 30s yeah. yeah 20s 30s ish I can't remember exactly but they've got the poofier skirts and, and the poofy sleeves and so like they are physically actually taking up much space but somehow they seem to be taking up less I think about that too with the shift from the Puritans to the English Reformation when it was like we're going to wear the clothing that we wore sort of before, but we're going to take out all the undergarments so like it flops all over the place and it's very deflated and it's loose and it might slip off at any moment. And wouldn't that be tantalizing? <laughs> like there's that suggestion of looseness. I think you see that in like the 1920s too, mm -hmm. that suggestion of, of looseness in the clothing and in the posture and in the body reflects perhaps a moral loosening in some ways in the culture that they are embracing a less staid, uh, a, a less staid way of living. Well, because like there, right there, you have built into like if you have like these layers of corsetry and undergarments and all that, like to get out of that, you you almost need a team to get you out of that if that's if that's the goal. And for uh, the, I mean, I I can say you don't always. 
can also verify. <laughs> However, point taken. There is certainly an illusion of, of distance between yourself and the exterior of your clothing. Because you, you've created at least a sense of like layers whereas like say in those 1920s outfits you're creating a sense of like i could be naked in half a second if that's what i want to do and <laughs> thus the, the the cultural shifts go with that which is which is funny that in in reality you still couldn't be naked in half a second because you've got a girdle under there for god's sake i mean that's <laughs> gonna take a while to get off but <laughs> but you're right. shimmying that, out of those tight things that, like it, no that's <laughs> that visual concept is very you know, it it carries weight that the reality doesn't carry. Right. One thing I think of, too, is how more extreme forms of modesty can signal um, a subgroup or a subculture. And I think that we do this in fantasy quite a bit, like the religious order dresses a certain way or, or whatever. But it's kind of interesting to me how, you know, even people who are not part of a defined religious order in a fantasy fiction world, you know, could still use modesty to convey um, where they align themselves or what groups and in-groups that they align themselves with. I can't think of a fantasy that has, like, the sexy monks. (laughs) (laughs) I want a a fantasy with sexy monks now. We're just, like, out there wearing, you know, Strip to the waist, usually damp for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Doing work out there, like just chopping wood just to get it chopped. (laughs) But we have, I feel like we have, we have modern analogs of that idea too, with like the, um, the straight edge culture that I feel was very big in the early 2000s. And like, I'm going to get a tattoo of an X over my hands as a visual signal that there are certain behaviors I restrain from. And I'm going to make a statement out of that. Whether or not anyone around me is actually engaged in such behaviors at the time, I have now made a visual signal that I don't do those things. Um, so it's not just a historical concept, right. this, this virtue signaling. Um, certainly not in general virtue signaling. We see plenty of that all over the place these days. And a quick identifier of like, who else, who, who are my people? Like, oh, you're... We, I, I know, I know what that means. Now I know that you're like a, you're an ally. You're a safe person. You're someone who, who, views the world the way that I do. It's funny. I think I mentioned I kind of live Amish country adjacent, um, and it's very interesting because the Amish are not, and and old order Mennonites are not um, the same thing and are not uh, monolithic. So it's really kind of interesting as I'm like driving to work and like spying on the Amish people, like there's a, there's so much variation and difference that you have the, um, the, the plain Mennonites who can like still wear patterns on their clothing. Like you can, you the dress has to be the certain style, but it can be a print. Whereas some of the Amish community is like, no prince, no, that's too fancy. That's not plain enough. <laughs> Clearly Satan's work. You know, can Clearly. you, do, do the men have to wear a beard or is shaving something that's considered immodest and inappropriate? And these like little variations all define which particular subgroup you are affiliated with and part of. And I, I haven't gotten them all quite figured out yet, but I am sure that they all know very well who is in and who is not in each particular group or even congregation in some cases. One of the things I always like 
to play with is the idea of using immodesty as as a weapon as like a power move like that's because that can be such a power i i remember reading about like some famous prostitute in ancient greece or maybe it was ancient rome phryne who what phryne phryne is her name if, yes. if this if we're thinking of the same might one be thinking of the same one where like apparently like the law was like you cannot be just naked in the street and so she was like okay i've tied a ribbon around my waist therefore <laughs> <laughs> i'm not naked so shut up i'm following the law <laughs> and, and that was... or you kind of have the inverse of that with the the lady godiva thing yeah. that you know she was trying to remain modest but had to appear in public without any clothing and so we have kept up the tradition of always painting and showing her with her hair covering everything because she was she was trying to not be immodest so we must respect that but like that was a thing i used again i used in velocity of revolution where like the upper rank people they call my main character in well they're in the bath and just like you know we're just gonna be here. Oh, we're we're being bathed right now, but you have to stand here and just watch because that struck me as like that's just the ultimate power move of a being bathed by other people and then making people who are below you just watch that just because ha I'm in charge and you are not. <laughs> it's a fantastic moment in one of the early episodes of HBO's Rome. Mark Antony. Oh yeah. James Purefoy, just standing there buck-ass naked being um having the strigil used on him to sort of scrape the oil off of his skin so like it's 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 a whole image y'all <laughs> um <laughs> it's a whole visual but he he conducts a political meeting while this is happening with a social inferior with someone that he has power over and it is such an expression of his power yeah. that he is not threatened by being the naked person in the room he is in fact showing off how much power and certainty he has of his position that he can conduct this negotiation and, and, and have this conversation buck ass naked <laughs> Spartacus does that a lot as well we, we do love our Roman stories where with, with... we do well the Romans had interesting ideas about nudity because you know they bathed together all the time and like communal nudity was okay in that place but not in the forum <laughs> it, it was like you know get naked together inside the bath but not at a dinner party it, it was it was locational in a way that i think our modern ideas of, of nudity aren't always but then again we do have ideas about like where you can wear a swimsuit yeah. right where is that okay versus not okay and i always find it funny when you're like 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 in a resort area and they'll like have to like put a sign like on restaurants like you have to put something on over your swimsuit because this is a nice establishment this is not the ice cream shack this is a place that you sit down and get dinner and so you have to wear pants over your swimsuit i mean if you're sitting if you're sitting on anything <laughs> yeah you really probably ought to put something over your your rear end um just for hygiene if nothing else <laughs> <laughs> and i think that there is a fair intersection of modesty and hygiene that a lot of the things i think we've interpreted as being about modesty and about not showing or about covering are really about pragmatic things like because if you don't you'll get really dirty or because if you don't cover that, you know, you're just in inviting a sunburn. So, so don't. 
I think that one of the ones I was thinking of is covering hair because that one has become so synonymous with in historical spaces like, you know, modesty means you're wearing covering over your hair, you're wearing the white cap or whatever. And it's like, there's a lot of that that's just about keeping your hair clean. Like if you don't have your hair up and under a cap, it gets gross and you're not showering every day. So is this really about modesty or is this about not being kind of gross? And at what points do the ideas of appropriateness like kind of just start to mingle those things that immodesty becomes synonymous in some ways with dirty? Or just the practical realities of where you're living. Because like in in much of the Middle East, just like the sun is so hot, of course you want every inch of your skin covered because you're going to get a sunburn in like 17 seconds if you're not completely covered. So that becomes the smart choice to make in the, in the in the environment you're in, and then that gets interpreted as, oh, these are very modest people who keep themselves very covered up. It would be very fun to see someone, and I'm sure it's been done, but I want to see more of it, of like the clueless outsider who's like, I'm going to eschew these modesty rules because I don't have to. I'm a free thinker. And then they get like a horrible sunburn or <laughs> the biting fleas that everyone's trying to avoid by wearing the robe or like attacking them or or whatever. Like, it, no, it's it's actually, we, we don't actually care about seeing those bits, but we don't want you to get hurt. <laughs> Though we don't see too much in fantasy of like the idea of rules change per situation. Like we don't have a lot of stuff of like like in the baths or on on the ocean. If you're at the beach, like this is one is perfectly acceptable to be this, but outside of that scenario, then those rules have completely changed. And we don't show that as much in fantasy of the fluidity of rules based on situation. And there can be a lot of fun with that, you know, and of knowing where the rules translate and where they don't can actually tie into fun plot stuff and fun character stuff. Um, So there's reasons to do it. It's not just overthinking things as we are apt to do. Like there's there's a reason to play with this stuff. There there is some book. I I can't remember what it is, but the two main characters have a whole conversation when they're at the beach where because like the the guy like slipped while he was getting sitting down and put his hand on on the woman's leg and then they just kept chatting no but like it was just like fine because they were at the beach and in bathing season and then she was like you know you did that and it's fine but because you know your hand is on my uncovered leg and that would be a scandalous in other situations like if we're at dinner tonight and i'm wearing a fancy dress and i present you my bare leg i bet you would not be you know willing in that scenario to put you put your hand on my leg and he's like i might <laughs> <laughs> you but could try she, it see what but then, happens <laughs> but then she doesn't and he's like oh, nope nope this is too weird well and i wonder where that overlaps with other conversations we've had about domestic spaces versus public spaces and and the safety and vulnerability inherent in those or our sacred and profane conversations where do these things all intersect and overlap I think that is where you start really building a realistic feeling culture in your fantasy world is when you think about all of those overlaps. Yeah. You know, one thing that I find funny always when thinking about modesty is the fact that children are inherently immodest. And whatever your definition of modesty is, kids like don't care. 
Um, you know, a three-year-old will throw on a tutu and that's it and just go like running down the street because why the heck not? Seemed like a good idea at the time. And I think that it like reminds, of course, we can't do that. People call the police if we do that. Um, but like, it, I think it just reinforces the idea that these are all layers upon layers of rules that take time to learn because they're artificial in many ways. They're not something that we are born knowing that you must cover this in this situation or don't talk about this in that situation, um, which is how kids get away with embarrassing their parents like all the time because they don't know these things. And so they just bring them out whenever they, they feel like it. I feel like there are multiple episodes of Star Trek where, for one reason or another, the clue the crew loses either their memories or their inhibitions, and comic hijinks ensue with everyone doing things they wouldn't normally normally do um, because of that that freeing of the rules. Like if you no longer have those rules embedded in your brain, then how might you act? What might you do when? presented with a given situation or finding yourself in a room with a person you find objectively attractive like just start taking off all your clothes like that that, if no one in that room has been told any better or knows any better then maybe i don't know just removing the rules can be a really fun um thing to play with as well i think especially with characters that you've already established and data is fully functional he is fully functional And, I think, and, and they established that in the second freaking episode of that series, which was ballsy move. That was a bold, bold move for on TNG's part. I feel. First run syndication in 1987. Like, you know, yeah, that, bold. that was pretty wild. We're going to essentially make the entire crew drunk and horny in the second episode <laughs> of our series about very serious people exploring space. But th- Big choice. I think it is fun as fantasy writers like to remember that that in many ways we are are the parents of our characters teaching them how to behave and we actually do get to like interrogate all that stuff and play with it and decide how it's going to look and if they want to run down the aisles of a church dressed in only a tutu yelling whatever they feel like yelling well maybe that's actually okay in the world that we're building and we're allowed <laughs> to go with it which but then that's also a thing you have to you have to teach your readers also like that's a thing that's going to be okay because a lot of times you'll come up with whatever the rules of your society are and show them but then your readers will be like hmm that's not how things are supposed to be and then they'll like judge your characters based on our own rules of modesty rather than the rules of their own culture Yeah, I think you have to be very clear with when I'm going to show you something shocking and you're shocked as a reader and now I need to show you how no one else is shocked. No one else is surprised by this. This is just another Tuesday. When when the naked spy comes into the the king's court and everyone's (laughs) like, oh, something's happening. And nobody's like, oh my goodness. Someone (laughs) just fired up the magical nudity gate and that's what happens. For our new listeners, (laughs) the magical nudity gate is a gift bestowed upon us by Kate Elliott when we talked about transportation. And it is the idea of a portal device, a a teleportation device, essentially, that strips you of all your clothing when you walk through it. You can't take anything with you. 
It's just you. It's Terminator rules. It's you can go somewhere, and... but you're going to be naked when you land. And we have had a lot of joy exploring this concept <laughs> and what it might mean for diplomacy, economy, everything else that it touches. And That's... modesty. Ding. Because if you're used to the idea of like naked person is just going to show up here, it, it starts to it starts to lose its shock value after after a week or two working that job. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on May 12th, which will be our 50th episode, and therefore we are doing something big. We will be joined by Star Trek author David Mack, Star Wars authors Delilah Dawson and Mike Chen, and X-Men author Teeny Howard to talk about world building in someone else's sandbox. It's going to be suitably epic. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world to your making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs>